Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Diana Campos. In Conversation features Dean Michael Horswell and faculty from Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, talking about research and creative activities that span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Amid a heightened political climate that questions foreign policy, national security, and immigration, Rebecca Lemoyne challenges exclusionary and xenophobic ideologies with her book, Plato's Caves, The Liberating Sting of Cultural Diversity. I think Plato's showing us throughout his dialogues that it's not foreigners that are the problem. It's the way that we interact with foreigners and the way that they interact with us. And so what's needed isn't necessarily to get rid of cross-cultural engagement and inclusion, but rather some sort of education. Dr. Lemoyne is an assistant professor in FAU's Department of Political Science. She teaches ancient, modern, and American political thought as well as literature and political theory. Her research focus includes the role of cultural diversity and cultural relations through the lens of ancient Greek political philosophy. And she's our guest for this edition of In Conversation. She sat down with Dean Horswell in February of 2020. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to talk about your research and especially your new book, Before we start, I thought it'd be great to hear how you got into this field of political science. So you're a political scientist, and I'm just always curious how people find their disciplines in our career as academics. Well, it's funny, actually. Um, When I started as an undergraduate at Washington and Lee University, I had no interest in politics. I had no idea that I would become a political science major. I actually wanted to be a journalist or some sort of creative writer, but the first semester, the journalism class was full, and so I had to go back to the course catalog and just pick a class randomly, and this class on political philosophy just kind of called to me, and so I took it, and the class was just really eye-opening. It showed me that, you know, there's these really important questions about what it means to be a human being, and the political conditions that allow us to best flourish. And those really spoke to me in a way that some of the questions at the time about politics, like political campaigning and, you know, who's going to win the next election weren't speaking to me. So that was how I ended up kind of getting into political science without realizing I was going to. (laughs) That's really wonderful when in university you can explore and find a passion that you didn't expect when you came to university. That's one thing I love about our College of Arts and Letters is we have so many different disciplines for students to explore and hopefully uh, follow one or more to their careers. So I've always wanted to ask this question, why is it called political science? Is it a science? And how do you explain that to your students? (laughs) That's a good question. So It's called a science because it tries to emulate the natural sciences in the sense that most political scientists look at empirical data and try to use that data to answer questions, to test hypotheses, and so on. My subfield of political theory is a little bit different. I would say it's not so much a science as an art. We are engaged in a lot of persuasive argument because the kinds of questions that political theorists address are really abstract philosophical questions that have no easy answers, such as, what is justice? 
what is the best form of government? What responsibilities do citizens have and what rights do they have? So those are all questions that you can't just go out and find an answer in the world to. You have to engage in debate about them. So I would say political theory is a little bit of the black sheep in a way of political science because it's more philosophical and historical, whereas political science is more empirical and concerned with what is and you know what the effect of certain laws is. Mm-hmm. And so in your case, you are a specialist in ancient political philosophy. How did you decide to go all the way back to sort of the beginning of Western civilization to the Greeks uh, to start exploring these themes in uh, political thought? Well, I think that when I took that first class in political philosophy, one of the first things we read was Plato's Republic. And it's one of those books that I think, I mean, obviously, when I teach it now, some of my students completely hate it and (laughs) want to throw the book out the window. Um, But a lot of other students, it really changes your life. It changes your perspective on things. Um, So I kind of had that transformative moment reading Plato's Republic. And so when I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, it was natural for me to go back to the Greeks and, you know, take an ancient political thought class and start to think more about what we can learn from these ancient peoples about these timeless questions about justice and power and government. And how do you relate those ideas to our contemporary times, especially when you're in your teaching, when you're working with students? I always try to show students that these are questions that we've been debating for centuries. There is no single answer to the question, what is justice? That's why we've been talking about it for so long. Mm. So these ancient texts, often students find that they're discussing issues we're discussing, maybe in a different way and maybe not getting into all the you know assumptions that we make about the environment we live in and the modern technologies that we have. But they're looking at a lot of the same fundamental issues about how we should treat one another and what sort of government we should have. Um, so I try to use pop culture a lot in my classes. So just today... Um, We were reading Rousseau's Second Discourse, and I played a song by the 1975 called uh, I'd Love It If We Made It, Hmm. which has this really great line, modernity has failed us, which I think perfectly sums up what Rousseau's arguing. Mm -hmm. And so I played that in the class, and we talked about how this resonates with what Rousseau, this thinker from a couple hundred years ago, is saying. That's one way I try to bring these texts to life in my class. Mm -hmm. So now let's turn to your new book. Um, Your new book is titled Plato's Caves, The Liberating Sting of Cultural Diversity. And the book is getting rave reviews from the scholarly community. So congratulations. Uh, Thank you. And I know you're excited about it too. One reviewer said, and I'm going to quote Arlene Saxonhaus, In this startling new reading of Plato, Rebecca Lemoyne uncovers a Plato whose dialogues foster an appreciation of, rather than hostility to, cultural diversity. This provocative and original assessment of Plato as embracing diversity forces the reader to rethink how the ancient philosopher enters current debates about the place of the foreigner in political communities. That's a great endorsement of your work, and I wondered if you could Walk us through this argument that you laid out in Plato's Caves. Yeah, so when I started this project, 
it started with me just reading Plato and being really intrigued by the role of the foreigner in his dialogues. I thought that Plato had a really interesting argument to make there. But then when I went to the scholarship on Plato, I found that a lot of people weren't talking about this subject, which is odd because you would think that in the 2,000-some years since Plato's dialogues were written that everything under the sun would have been discussed and analyzed by this point. Um, So that was one um, sort of motivation for this book. So those scholars who were mentioning Plato's view on foreigners tended to present him as very hostile to cultural diversity, which wasn't matching up at all with what I was seeing from the dialogues. So I decided to write my dissertation about this subject, the role of the foreigner in Plato's political thought. And what kind of, I I think, led me to realize that I was reading Plato very differently was that a lot of times people are just taking quotes completely out of context. They're forgetting that Plato actually wrote dialogues, not treatises. And so I found that there's all this scholarship that's bringing that out, um, bringing out the dialogical elements of of the text, um, the fact that there's characters, there's dramatic actions, there's people blushing, people leaving the conversation, etc. So we really need to interpret these dialogues from a literary lens. Um, So there were people doing that, but they hadn't applied that yet to the question of the foreigner. So that's what my book does. It looks at the role of the foreigner in four different platonic dialogues and shows that with this more nuanced, um, contextualized sort of reading, paying attention to the drama and what Plato's saying as a whole, rather than just assuming that Socrates is Plato's mouthpiece, that we actually get a more positive view of foreigners than if we just, say, took a random line that seems very xenophobic out of context and attributed that to Plato. So what was at stake for the Greeks at that time as far as foreigners in their society, why was it an issue for them as expressed through the dialogues? Well, first of all, Greece wasn't a unified country. There were many different city states or cities such as Athens and Sparta and Corinth. Um, So they all had different policies on foreigners. Some like Sparta were very xenophobic, very exclusionary Whereas others like Athens, which is where Plato was, you know, born and raised and writing his dialogues, Athens was very culturally diverse. And some of the numbers even suggest that they had more foreigners in their society than contemporary United States has. Mm. So I think that these questions are really kind of coming to a head because Athens is this cosmopolitan center in this time period. And a lot of people are coming in from different places for the commercial opportunities for the freedom of expression that you would find in Athens because it was the first democracy. And so these issues are really coming to a head of how do we incorporate foreigners into our society and, you know, what, how should we treat them? And, you know, should we be more like the Spartans and just exclude foreigners? What is this doing to our democracy? And what did Plato have to say about that? Well, on my interpretation... I think Plato is trying to take a very nuanced position. So on the one hand, I think he is, there is some wariness in his dialogues towards the mass immigration that's happening. But that wariness, even though we often, when people read Plato's dialogues, they often think it's because he doesn't like foreigners. I actually interpret it differently. I see Plato as 
being more wary because of the response that people have to foreigners. So instead of being comfortable and welcoming and being open-minded, people are having this negative reaction, this uh, knee-jerk response to foreigners, because we all grow up in our own kind of bubble, our own cultural bubbles. And when we meet someone from a different cultural bubble, there tends to sort of be this clash of horizons, which brings out contradictions in our own beliefs and perspectives. And so I think Plato's showing us throughout his dialogues that it's not foreigners that are the problem. It's the way that we interact with foreigners and the way that they interact with us. And so what's needed isn't necessarily to get rid of cross-cultural engagement and inclusion, but rather some sort of education, some sort of way to deal with this epistemological unsettlement that occurs when we engage with someone from a different culture. Mm. It sounds remarkably contemporary to me, this debate that was going on in his dialogues, no? Yes, absolutely. It's very relevant, I think, to some of the conversations that I'm seeing in American society and beyond today. So the subtitle of your book, uh, Plato's Caves, the second part, The Liberating Sting of Cultural Diversity, could you talk a little bit about where you came up with that phrase, liberating sting, and what does it refer to? Yeah, so um, Socrates often compares himself to a gadfly, um, a horsefly. Um, So this comes up in uh, Plato's dialogue, The Apology. Socrates says that he's a gadfly who's been stinging the horse of Athens into wakefulness. So his fellow citizens have kind of fallen into this mindlessness. Um, They're just going about pursuing their imperial ambitions and not really thinking about what they're doing. And Socrates is that, you know, kind of annoying Um, fly that's just going around stinging people and getting them to question whether they're actually living a virtuous life or not, whether they're living well, and whether they're, you know, being just. And so the idea of the liberating sting of cultural diversity is that foreigners are, in some sense, playing that same sort of role in our society and vice versa, Um, that whoever the foreigner is to you is kind of like a Socratic gadfly going around and provoking you to think about alternative ways of life and to question the way that you're living your life. Mm -hmm. And that can be very unsettling and painful, which is why we tend to want to swat that fly away rather than engage with it. And is that the roots, you think, of xenophobia itself, that tendency to not want to face up with the, the gadfly, if you will? I certainly think that that's one of the major causes of it. And there's a lot of research and psychology to support that. Um, There have been studies that have shown even people who are very culturally aware and sensitive and want to be very good at interacting with people from other cultures tend to have these subconscious biases or subconscious reactions of avoidance and, you know, sort of distancing themselves or maybe even reacting with hostility. So I think it's very deep-seated within human psychology. So it seems to me that your book is kind of taking some of the ammunition away from the white nationalists who have tried to appropriate the classics for promoting their own xenophobia. And I wonder if you could maybe comment on this aspect of your work and, and, and its reception. Yeah, it's interesting that when I first proposed this topic for my dissertation, 
my advisor asked me, well, who cares whether Plato's for or against cultural diversity? And I'll admit that by the time I graduated, I still didn't have a great answer to that question. But then when I came to FAU and I started transforming the dissertation into a book, the answer became very apparent when I was walking around campus one day and saw some flyers by a very well-known white nationalist group. On the flyers, they had pictures of statues from the classical world emblazoned with mottos on top of them, such as make America great again or protect your heritage. I started to look into that and I realized that there's this huge world, particularly on the internet, where a lot of white supremacists are using the classics to justify their anti-immigration agendas. And so I see my book as kind of a response to that. I'm taking one of the figures that's been used in this by these uh, people, by this movement, and showing them that they're kind of reading him wrong, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that their reading is very surface level, and Mm -hmm. they're really ignoring the you know, the dramatic context. It's like they're just taking a random quote out of context and thinking that that's what Plato thought. So I hope that this book will kind of challenge the way that white supremacists are using the classics. We talked about the second part of your book's title, The Liberating Sting of Cultural Diversity. But what about the first part, Plato's Caves? Yeah, so this comes from the cave allegory in book seven of Plato's Republic. This is probably the most famous story from the history of philosophy. But just to remind listeners that the idea is that you have a cave and in that cave are some prisoners who are forced to look ahead at these shadows on the wall. Those shadows are the only thing that they've ever known in their entire lives. And they think that those shadows are the true world. They don't realize that there's actually this whole other world outside of the cave. So my book takes that idea of the cave and makes the argument that there's actually not just one cave. There's many different versions of this basic model of the cave. So we're all prisoners in our own unique kind of cave. And that cave, I argue, is a sort of political, cultural construction. So there's the cave of the United States, People who are born and raised in America are led to believe certain things or to interpret these shadows on the wall in a certain way. People born in China have their own kind of cave. So the title is a sort of reflection of that, that we're all in a cave, but we're all in slightly different caves. So what happens when a prisoner from one cave starts talking to a prisoner from another cave? I think that the cave allegory sort of answers that when we get to the part of the story where one of the released prisoners who's seen the real world comes back down and tries to tell everyone about it, and he's treated with hostility. People don't believe what he's saying. And in fact, they say that if they get their hands on the person who led him up out of the cave, that they'll kill that person. So I think that that reflects really nicely what the main argument of my book is, that when we're encountering these people with different perspectives from us. Um, And often we see the greatest distance in perspectives between people from different cultures. It's very unsettling. And our tendency is just to retreat back to what we've always known, the familiar world that we've grown up with and all the beliefs that come along with that. And to ignore any contradictions or any other ways of life that might be worthy of our consideration and just to kind of hunker down and 
reject and maybe even react violently to the people who are presenting us with a, a different form of the cave. Mm. Wow, that's a powerful reading of Plato's allegory. It, it, and it just uh, speaks to me on how important it is to get out of our own caves and to interact with people that are different than ourselves. And of course, I think that's the great mission of the university too, is to provide our students that opportunity to have those experiences outside of their own cave, if you will. So Rebecca, I was wondering if you'd like to talk a little bit about your next project, what you're working on now and into the future. Yeah, so as I was writing my first book, I realized that the theme of music kept coming up a lot. Um, Plato in the Republic, there's a lot about foreign music, and he's sort of using music as a metaphor to think about cross-cultural interactions. And as I started thinking about this more and looking beyond Plato, I realized that the Greeks in general are very interested in the connections between music, culture, and politics. So for my next project, I'm planning to look at how different thinkers in the ancient Greek world are using music as a sort of metaphor for thinking through cross-cultural relations. Um, I'm I'm particularly interested in the fact that whereas we think we tend to categorize music in terms of genre like hip-hop or country or R&B, the Greeks tended to think of music in terms of geographic regions, and they named their musical modes after these different areas of the world. So I'm very struck by that. And I want to look at how they use this sort of language of music to theorize about how we should be interacting with foreigners domestically and state to state or polis to polis. That sounds like an exciting new project. I look forward to talking to you about it when you uh, publish the next book. Thank you. So thank you, Rebecca Lemoyne, for joining me here today in conversation in the College of Arts and Letters. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Professor Rebecca Lemoyne and Dean Michael Horswell of FAU's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters in Conversation. They were recorded in February of 2020. In Conversation is a production of FAU's School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. I'm Diana Campos. All of us thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation.